You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I remember several years ago when Pastor David pointed out that many of our worship songs today um, make the mistake of presenting a realized eschatology. In other words, that heaven is already here. Now, we know that the kingdom is here, but that everything is as good as it could possibly be because we're in Jesus and we don't look forward to the day when we will feast in the house of Zion. But I'm, I'm so grateful for that beautiful, beautiful song. Last week, John Bart, before you go in there, before you go in there, last week, uh, if you were here during the second service, you might have wondered, what's John doing in a t-shirt? That's because I had his shirt on. I spill water all over myself. I had, I had a bottle of water open, uh, and somebody was handing me something, and so I just went like that, and I guess I squeezed, and I mean, it was just all over. So John graciously said, here, take my shirt, just peel it off, and he's sitting over here with the t-shirt, so what a great guy. I always knew it, but now it's for sure. <laughs> no, John Bart is the best. He's the best. Well, a um, couple of things do want to say. Next week, Discovery Lunch, if you've been coming to Grace, but you haven't really fully taken that next step, just be there at lunch. Some of the elders will be there, staff, and uh, you'll get to meet some people in, in a very casual setting. You won't have to say a word. Just sit at the table and eat. It's not quite like feasting in the house of Zion, but it's sort of the taste of it, you know. I, I, I thought this morning as Jim led... Uh, the table, let us at the table so beautifully <clears throat> when he was talking about we have been invited to dinner. Never thought about this before, but John 13 to 16 that we're coming to the farewell discourse, particularly 14 to 16, but it begins at 13. It's kind of like an after dinner sermon, you know, so that's what this is. It's an after dinner sermon this morning. The preacher's not nearly as good. The preacher is only here because of the first preacher what Jesus did for us. So here's the question. Why do you come to church? Because my parents make... No, that's not... A, let me rephrase that. What do you hope to get out of church? Exactly, I hope we get out earlier than we did last week. No, that's not it. I'm, I'm, I don't think there are too many people that are, are thinking like that when they come to grace. I'm sure, especially if you're young enough to actually mean those words when you say them, that be, may be the case. But you never know. Why do you come to church, though? We've talked about this in, in the last several weeks, little pieces here and there. We're going to try to bring a lot of it together this morning. Some will say, I need to know how to get through the week. I mean, I have literally heard this many times. If you can't tell me something on Sunday that's going to help me on Monday, then I'm not interested. A lot of people come to church for that reason. And, and you can understand the logic in that. I, I get that. But is it the best reason to come to church? I, probably not. Others will say, the music, the fellowship, the business contacts. The good feeling I have about myself when I attend church. Some will say, I hope to learn more about God and how I should live. And finally, some will say, I want to know how to go to heaven. 
And I'm sure it's about being good, but I'm just not exactly sure all that it encompasses. So many of the reasons for church attendance that I just gave uh, are good, though not all of them. Next question, what do you look for when you come to Scripture? What do you anticipate as you open the Bible and you begin to read? Are you looking for guidance for life? An inspirational thought that will help you live a better life today? Many of you wonderfully have devotions in the morning. You maybe use a help like Spurgeon or, or um, Elizabeth Elliot or some other help morning and evening um, that's Spurgeon, so I'm, I'm redundant now. But you know what I'm saying. Oh, or you just open Scripture and start reading. Maybe you're going through, working your way through a book of Scripture. So are you looking, when you come to Scripture, for guidance, for an inspirational thought, for knowledge, encouragement, courage? Once again, noble thoughts. But are they really getting at the core of what the whole thing is about? If this book is, as we would acknowledge, now you don't think about this very often, but is this the most tangible blessing that we possess? Is this the most important thing that we can get our hands on? Is it more important than this? Is it more important than the car we drive, the home we live in? Again, I suppose it depends how much you believe it, but yes. You know what people have done through the ages for just a few pages of the Word of God and how blessed they felt just to have a little bit of Scripture that they could literally read and sense God speaking directly to them through His Word. If this is our most tangible possession, then what a shame to explore around the edges of it when the rich treasure of the core is available to us if we will commit to coming at it in the proper way. Let me put it another way. If you look to Scripture only to find application, if you're only there on Sunday to help you live on Monday, then you may miss the core the application, in fact, may only make sense in certain contexts. And one day you may find that the Bible no longer works for you. If, however, you keep your eye on the core and realize that the Bible is not first and foremost about you and about making it day to day, it is about Jesus instead. Then application will flow very naturally. It will encompass more areas of your life than you ever dreamed it would. And you'll find application all over the place. So today's text is John 11, 25 through 27, and then 45 to 47. This is really part two of John chapter 11. Last week we read the narrative in which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This morning, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the key portion of Jesus' teaching, into that key text of verses 25 to 27. And this teaching brings a far greater context to the events of the day when Jesus told Lazarus, come out, and he 
came out of that grave. Our initial reading today is the same as it was last week. John eleven twenty five to 27. It's our custom to stand as the word of God is being read. So if you would please stand for the reading of scripture. <clears throat> Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Father, um, we have been conditioned in many times to play around the edges of the truth of Scripture. We don't have time to get at the core to do the digging that we need. We get bored. We get distracted. <laughs> Lord, give us a laser focus to look into your word and to see Jesus and to see that everything flows from that. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Misi. Well, if today is your first day at Grace, and lots of times I'll look out and i say, oh, I don't see anybody new. And then I hear about all kinds of people who were new. So when I say that, I, I don't know. If it's your first Sunday at Grace, you may have discerned by now that we're going through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. And one of the features of John's Gospel is that Jesus will often use a physical analogy, a metaphor, if you will. He'll use a physical analogy to make a spiritual point that is mis initially misunderstood. Then, later, it is understood with great meaning. Biblical metaphors are important for us to understand and apply. It won't be too far in the future before I'm going to talk about what I've been reading about in Kevin Van Hooser's book, Hearers and Doers, about how we need to replace our... The, the metaphors that the world uses with biblical metaphors. And we need to use them and talk about them to one another all the time. Like dying to self and, and building your house on a rock. That kind of thing. So we'll, we'll get to that uh, at some point. But <clears throat> John 11 is actually the opposite. Where Jesus is, is pointing to a real life event that is going to occur. And Martha keeps it in the spiritual realm. So it's like the opposite of what's normally going on. She's thinking, oh yes, okay, at the, at the last day he'll rise. We, we, those who follow the Pharisees understand that. But I don't expect him to rise now. Uh, in fact, Jesus told, had told Martha in verse 23 that her brother would rise. And in verse 24 is when she said, yes, he's going to rise on that last day. But Jesus was focused on the present when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements in John. And it struck me yesterday. It's the only one that was spoken to an individual. The I am then followed by the object. <clears throat> it, it's the only place where... Jesus spoke to an individual. Now, there were others 
around who heard, including most likely the Apostle John. It's evident by the events that followed that Martha did not understand what Jesus was saying. She didn't grasp it. When Jesus told the workers to move the stone that covered the cave, what was her response? <clears throat> no, 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 four days. Lord, the, whole, the odor will be horrific. You know the rest. Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, and out he came. Now, we are blessed to read John 11, not only on this side of Lazarus' resurrection, but also on this side of Jesus' sacrifice, burial, and resurrection. We understand much more of what is being said than, was, than the people did who were standing there present understood what was being communicated. Even so, we live the same way that Martha did. Lord, I suppose it will be okay in the end, but I, I still want to expect too much right now. Either we expect too much or too little right now. <clears throat> Did Martha and Mary have needs that Jesus addressed before he raised Lazarus from the dead? <clears throat> they both did. Martha was brought into a deeper understanding of who Jesus was. And Jesus grieved with Mary. You know, when Mary came and fell down at his feet, and she wept, and Jesus wept with her. It reminds you, never been at a funeral and the family is receiving guests and someone who... Is, deep, is grieving deeply, looks to the back of the room, and there's someone didn't expect to be there. And they come together and just embrace and, and cry together. No words need to be spoken. That's what happened when Jesus was approached by Mary. They just wept together. <clears throat> His presence brought comfort to everyone, but there was much more to come, and we like Martha, need not limit our sights to the day when Jesus returns, but we must focus on the present as well. <clears throat> I want to address uh, those of you who are new at Grace. I say this every so often, and I may have said it recently. I hope not too recently. You may well come in on a Sunday morning and say, you know, I've never heard that before, and I'm not really sure I agree with it. <clears throat> That's more than fair, I understand. Please know that no one who occupies this space on Sunday morning is ever seeking to confuse anyone who is here. We're not trying to speak cryptically, just that some things you may have never heard before, you've never thought about it before. It's equally true that we don't preach on Sunday morning for doses of inspiration to get you through the week, as has already been indicated. Uh, you may not understand something on a given Sunday, but if you, if you sense that the Lord is in this place, and perhaps this is the place you need to think about, just give it some time. Give it an extended look. In fact, the Bible has a compelling, big story, but if we treat it only as a series of short stories, then we're going to miss the big picture. So while after six months to a year, you may not agree with everything, you will at least have a far better understanding of how the pieces fit into the whole, much like the puzzle 
that we were talking about last week and the little red piece saying, what are you doing putting me in the middle of all this blue? Well, just give it time. You'll see. It'll begin to make sense. I say this because of what may appear to be to the careful listener a contradiction in this morning's message. In fact, if you've been listening, I'm all over the place. Is it now or is it later? Yes, it is. Heretics in the first century said everything is now. The Eeyores in the body of Christ say everything is then. Just got to hang on. It'll be okay. But the Bible doesn't present this life, what I'm calling the resurrected life, as either or. It's both and. In the, in the first century, those heretics said, it's all right here. And there is plenty of name it and claim it business going on in our day. That is not the resurrected life. And by the way, I'm saying resurrected life, kind of keeping the idea passive in the sense, instead of resurrection life, so that we focus on the fact that we were raised from the dead. We didn't raise ourselves from who raised Jesus from the dead? Father, Son, or Spirit? Once again, yes. All three. It wasn't a two-way business with, between us and Jesus. He raised us from the dead. And anything that we accomplish, like Romans 8, uh, verses 3 and 4 talk about, we, the Lord is doing that through us, that the righteousness of God might be lived out in us and through us rather than we participating with God. Do we obey? Are we called to obey? Are we called to trust? Yes, all of those things. But God is going to be the one who does the work in us. The resurrected life of a believer is characterized by trust that God is doing all things for his glory. And we are blessed. We know that we are blessed to be citizens of the kingdom of God. The resurrected life is not passive in the sense of, well, I'll just let the Spirit move me as it will. It's characterized by love and forgiveness for our enemies, even turning the cheek when necessary. We say like John the Baptist did, he must increase, I must decrease. The resurrected life is pursuing holiness <clears throat> because we are told, but as he who called you is holy, you should be holy in all your conduct. All this is possible because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we live as those whose hope is in eternity, not in the fulfillment of our dreams. Although the blessings of God from day to day are far too great to enumerate. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was a picture of what would happen to him in the coming months. He would come out of the grave after having been arrested, crucified, and buried. He lived the life we were incapable of living. He died the death that we deserved. When we come face to face with our sin, when we recognize that it was our sin that put him on the cross, when we recognize our goodness will never be enough. And we cry out, oh God, I'm a sinner. And then we put our trust and our hope in what Jesus did on the cross for us. I believe that Jesus died for me. 
And he is my only hope of heaven. Dear Lord Jesus, save me. And the Bible says we are saved. I want to ask you once again, as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is your hope of heaven? Call out to the Lord. He will save you. And when you call out to the Lord, I want to ask you at the end of the service, talk to me, talk to anyone you've seen on the platform today, anyone leading uh, in, in communion, talk to the person who brought you, tell them about what's going on in your life. If it's genuine, you're not going to be able to keep it to yourself. I can promise you that. You may as well get started now. Well, we're going to come back to the resurrected life in a bit, but let's quickly see what happened in Bethany after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's not, it's not surprising that many of the people who witnessed this believed in Jesus. I'm thinking I would have. I, it, it just makes sense. You see, four days, he calls Lazarus out of the grave. It happens. So you would expect many to believe in his resurrection. And by the way, that is why when people see a radical change in your life, many people are attracted to Jesus. They're like, what happened? I, I want some of what this guy has, this, this, this lady has. But not everybody is going to think that way. Some people are going to be opposed. And life is not going to be fun. Just like some went to tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. The religious leaders thought that Jesus was bad for the nation. Now, fortunately, no one thinks that in our country in our day. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was preaching against, their, against the temple, which was their pride and joy and a sign in their mind of God's blessings on their nation. The, uh, Herod's temple that, that stood in Jesus' day was one of, literally one of, and some people guess maybe the most impressive structure in the entire world. And for them, you imagine, you imagine that. Somebody walking around the Taj Mahal saying, this place is coming down. That's what Jesus said over and over. And they were like, we can't have this. We're not having him talk like that. They also thought that he preached against the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a major focus of their national identity. But Jesus was preaching against their misplaced affections. When the Bible says that Jesus came at just the right time, think about it. There's this magnificent temple. There's the Sabbath being practiced by the people of God. And the Sabbath had 39 additional regulations and many of them sub sets of regulations all over the place about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. They had just missed the thing entirely. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the fulfillment of all the feasts as we have seen over and over in John. He's all of those things. And he was preaching against their misplaced. Affections. In John 5, he said, you think you're saved because you know the law of God. But don't you know the scriptures point to me? The Pharisees would have none of it. 
of course. And so they labeled Jesus a threat to the nation, although truly the threat was only to their power and status. We can justify anything we want to. You know what? Anything. And we do. Unless we live a resurrected life. Then Caiaphas, the high priest, made a stunning prophecy. One that had implications of which he knew nothing. Jesus would indeed die in the place of sinners. But it was not so that Israel could survive as a nation. In fact, they had about 40 years, less than 40 years. And the temple was coming down. The walls were coming down once again. They were going to be devastated, decimated because of their sins. Jesus would die in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of sins for all who would humble themselves before him. And Caius, Caiaphas and the other religious leaders assumed the exact opposite posture of humility before Jesus. In fact, they said, we're going to put an end to this. Their pride kept them from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. They were far too committed to power. They put nation above kingdom, although they would have understood nation and kingdom to be one and the same. They conflated the two. Jesus was a threat. Caiaphas and the leaders likely understood this meeting that we're reading about. They understood this meeting as the trial. They were trying as best they could to follow the laws like Mishnah. The Mishnah had said you cannot render a verdict on the same day of the trial. And even though they're talking about death this day, I'm sure they separated the two in their mind. This was a trial in their minds. It's clearly a turning point. The threats that had been made against Jesus up to this point weren't likely to go anywhere. They picked up stones to stone him, but they obviously didn't intend to carry out that threat like they would later against Stephen. From this point forward, though, there was a bounty on Jesus' head. And because it was in his time, he slipped out and removed himself from the area. So, would you say that Jesus is less controversial in our day than he was in the first century Palestine? Well, me either. <laughs> not really. I mean, he's very controversial. We're not seeing that yet where people are being <clears throat> killed because of their faith in Christ. It also causes them to believe all that the scripture says about life, including marriage and and any number of other issues of the day that are important. Never ever conflate sin and sinner as we talked about uh, last week. I, I saw a little clip yesterday, Jared, that your brother did about loving sinners and, and, and being compassionate for others who are just like us. And separating that from the sin and disagree, it was really wonderful. I don't know if you know, but Jared Free's brother, Micah, is a pastor in Chattanooga. And, uh, preached a great word about that that I saw yesterday. But, but Jesus is controversial in our day. 
Many unbelievers stay away from Jesus because it is culturally um, problematic to believe in Jesus and all the things that he says and to get along well in life. <clears throat> and many people say, why should I give my life for an idea that will only be useful in, at death and in fact, which will only restrict me at the present? For many, death is the end of all things. Now, we who believe know better, but whether we understand much more than Martha did is debatable. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Leon Morris says that Jesus' teaching means, quote, the moment we put our trust in Jesus, we begin to experience the life of the age to come, which cannot be touched by death. Jesus is bringing Martha a present gift, not simply the promise of a future good. Close quote. The Bible is full of pictures like the one we see in John 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, pointing to his own resurrection. Some people treat the Bible like clouds or the pictures in the Bible like clouds. You see a bear, I see a bicycle. What can I say? But the Bible doesn't, the Bible pictures don't work like that. They're pointing to something. Do you know where the best picture of the resurrected life is in our walk with the Lord as described in the Bible? It's at our baptism. Look at Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the resurrected life. We died with Christ, and our baptism is a picture pointing to that. We died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ, and we don't have to live like we used to. Hallelujah! The moral law tells us how to live, but we find no help in the law for living the life God calls believers to live, which is why it's not about an inspirational thought. That's not going to get it done long term. Our pursuit of self-help Christianity easily distracts us from Jesus. As Michael Horton puts it, the moral law gives direction for believers, but only the gospel gives the power to fulfill it. When God calls, Adam, where are you? Our response must be, in Christ. When your identity in Christ is prominent in your thoughts, when you think about that day in, and day out, you will discover that Christ lives through you in ways that would be impossible for you if you were living in your own strength. What is it that just consumes you? Do you get angry? Do you get defensive? Do you, do you, do you just have to tell something that you know that you know you shouldn't tell? And you think, oh, 
why did I do that? And you do it again and again and again. Are you trying to do it in your own strength? Do you cry out, Holy Spirit, help me in this moment? Are you letting the resurrected life come to the front? Or are you saying like Adam did before, <laughs> the Lord covered him with the skins. Oh, I was afraid. I'm just never going to get this. Now look, in home groups, we're going to talk about why do you think the Lord doesn't deliver us from ourselves fully until Christ. And it has to do with the gospel. But there are things that we can do in the power of the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit working in us and living with Christ as our chief focus that we wouldn't be able to do in other ways. The best news of all is when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he is pleased. That's the benefit of finding your identity in Christ. So here are a few things for you to consider this week. There's not a lot of time to, to dwell long here, but you'll be able to think more about these in home groups or on your own if you do it this week. First, <clears throat> Do not take the easy way out of a sermon, a devotion, or in Bible study and settle for application without fully investigating the truth about Jesus. John 5, 37 to 40, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 15. I'm not saying that application is unimportant. Absolutely not. I hear things when, you know, people say, God did not save us to increase our knowledge or didn't give us the Bible to increase our knowledge but to change our lives. I, I agree with that, sort of. And sort of don't because application without the knowledge of who we are in Christ means nothing. But in our identity in Christ, we are absolutely called to be different and to live different lives. I'm not saying application is unimportant. I'm only saying that Jesus is the source of life for us. And there is much that God wants us to know about Jesus before we seek to please him, especially before we seek to do so in our own strength. <clears throat> Second, live this life in Christ in the present with your hope fully set on Jesus' return, where you will live with him forever. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Please, please read these texts this week. Please read these passages this week. Because these texts really tell us, help us understand what already not yet is all about. I, I say frequently... Uh, please read Every Moment Holy. If you've got that book, um, it's the book of liturgies. Uh, I would encourage you to read those morning, noon, and evening liturgies. That's the best way I know to say this is what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. Read them day in and day out. <clears throat> I don't read them every day. I don't even read one every day. But every time I do, it focuses my heart where it belongs. And all three of them end with looking forward to Christ's return. Because that's how we must live our lives here. Or we will get caught up in the here and now and miss what's important. If we get this out of balance, 
the quality of our Christian life will be limited, and so will our witness. Third, <clears throat> do not allow yourself to put country, culture, political party, peer approval, personal desires, or fill in the blank above Jesus. For you may quickly lose focus on the core. John eleven forty five to 53 that we've just read about people losing focus. In Revelation 2, 1 to 7, the message from Jesus to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. <clears throat> Someone recently told me, <clears throat> and again, I have to confess, I'm, I'm not sure, if I may have said this here recently, I know I've said it in home group, but someone recently told me that he just discovered, he's just now figuring out that the Bible is not about him, it's about Jesus. He's been told all his life, it's about you, the Bible is figuring out how to make it, but he said, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And I'm like, is this a sad thing for you? He's like, no, no, this is a great thing. When you realize it's about him, then the life that we enjoy in him becomes possible. Otherwise, we're getting saved and then living our lives kind of like we're still trying to be good enough for God to be proud of us or to be pleased with us. You may think it would be difficult to go from focusing on self to exalting Jesus. But once the glory of God and your identity with Christ take root in your heart, you'll give thanks to the Lord at very high levels. Because you will understand, just as it was clear Jim did as he led us at the table, we don't deserve to be here. But we've been invited anyway. That's a great word. Fourth, <clears throat> following Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. It may cost you everything, although you will gain Jesus. Again, Mark 8, 34 to 38. Read this text what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Many of those in John 11 who followed Jesus would give their lives as martyrs. Never did a martyr regret giving her life for Jesus. Last, remember your baptism. You died with Jesus. You've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 1 through 11. <clears throat> baptism is more than a symbol. It's more than a picture. It's more than something that we do for God. It's one of the things that Protestants don't fully understand. We think that when we come to this table, that we're doing something for God by taking communion. This is something that he has done for us. Baptism is something that he does for us, as we've read about in Romans 6, 3 to 4. Is it step of obedience? Absolutely. Is it something we ought to do? Yes, 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 yes. 
But when we approach it understanding that we don't deserve this, but God has done a beautiful thing for us. When we approach our baptism by faith or remember it by faith, sometimes because we were too little to remember then baptism is a promise from God that we belong to him and that Christ is in us and we have been raised from the place of spiritual death to walk in newness of life with him. Our identity is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet... Shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father. Our hearts are full. They're full of Jesus. Who we have desired. All of us. Not just the ones who lead in any way. But all of us participating in the service. We all desire to exalt him. To lift him high. And we recognize week in and week out. That we get in the way of that happening in our lives. So, Lord, this day we come to you confessing, living by the flesh, living, seeking to do well without understanding that Jesus is the one who does the work in us. So, Lord, may we see him not only as the means of our salvation, but as we take up our crosses daily. May his life flow through us. Thank you for the beautiful pictures of baptism and the Lord's Supper that you've given us to remind us of our deep need, but also of who we are in Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.